0: once again a warm welcome and tonight our topic is the king james version and the revival of the nation of israel and our speaker mr dave billington is asked as as an introductory reading if you have your bibles you could turn to ezekiel chapter 37 that's the prophet ezekiel chapter 37 and we are going to read verses 1 to 14 Ezekiel chapter 37 and verses 1 to 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and ye shall live and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and behold a shaking and the bones came together bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up on their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves and shall put my spirit in you. And ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, saith the Lord. So I will now ask everyone's kind attention and call on David to bring to us the topic, the King James Version and the Revival of the Nation of Israel. Well, good evening,
1: everybody, and welcome to the King James 400 Bible Exhibit. I'm happy that you could all come out tonight. The prophecy that we just read together is a fascinating one. It's fairly well known, but not very well understood. It's part of the prophecies of restoration in the prophecy of Ezekiel. The meaning of the prophecy is really quite plain. We, we just read how the bones represent the whole house of Israel. And the bones are dead, and they come back together, and they come to life. And they were, the bones were in their graves in, in countries far away. And God says, I'll bring you out of your graves and bring you back to the land of Israel. So this prophecy has to do with regathering the house of Israel and bringing them back to spiritual life. And Ezekiel, the son of man, represents those who speak to the bones and prophesy to them in the spirit of God's word and bring them to life. So what we see is a nation transformed by the word of the living God. Well, we may ask the question, what is the connection between the King James Version and the nation of Israel? Because the King James Version is really a Christian Bible and a Protestant translation. And the nation of Israel is a nation that is centered around the religion of Judaism, and they don't accept the New Testament. So how do those two things go together? Because... They don't really seem to fit. But what we want to do tonight is look at the story of the King James Bible and the story of the Bible and the story of the nation of Israel and see how those two, um, those two ideas fit together. Well, the King James Bible is really an incredible book, and it's touched every single one of us in some way. All of us would know these words. This is the first edition King James Bible. The top left is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And we know uh, these, these verses. We've heard them, and they've impacted us and touched us in some way. Almost whoever we are, we've been touched by the King James Bible. And when they translated the King James Bible, it was based on the work of William Tyndale. And William Tyndale was not just a good translator, but he was somebody who could make the language come to life. He was somebody who could make the language memorable so that it flowed, so it had a cadence and a rhythm to the language. And he didn't just translate it (coughs) with the best words to use, but he translated it so that we could remember it, and so that it would flow nicely and it would be read very well. And that carried over into the King James Bible. I'm going to show you one example of that type of language. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that chapter about love. And, and the translation of that chapter and the way it's worded is really quite beautiful. And a lot of it comes from William Tyndale's translation. But if you read that this verse through, we'll read it together, you can you can feel the rhythm in the language and how it's so easy to remember and how it flows so nicely. So when they translated it, they transla- translated it, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so they really thought about how, we can we, how can we make this language flow? How can we make this memorable? How can we make this easy for people to remember? And so they, they gave it this cadence and rhythm in the language of the Bible. And that's why we like it so much. And that's why when uh, William got married, William and Kate, I guess it was, if I get that right. Um, I'm not too much into the Royals but but what Bible would they use at at that wedding well of course they would read from the King James Bible and we treasure the beauty of it and the and the language does indeed have a beauty to it well about 2,000 years ago Jerusalem fell to the Roman armies and that was the end of the Jewish nation and they came and they destroyed Jerusalem and they carried away the treasures from the temple, and when they got back to Rome, they made an arch, the Arch of Titus, to commemorate their victory, and they engraved this picture on the arch, and that's how we know what the candlestick looked like that was in the temple, because that's the only picture we have it, is that engraving from the Romans on the top left, and we can also see some trumpets, probably the silver trumpets from the temple, and so they carried all those things away, and they carried the people away, and the people were scattered, throughout the world, and people throughout the centuries believed the Bible because of what it had said about the Jewish nation and how those things had come to pass, how they were scattered, how they were persecuted, how they were a proverb and a byword, how they were expelled from one country to another, and they read chapters like Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I would recommend reading it through and just seeing how that chapter that was written so long ago and those words that were written at the time of Moses have played out down through history. And people believed the Bible for those reasons. And it was at Masada that the Jewish people had that final last stand, that fateful last stand, when the rebels that were there and the women and the children remaining committed suicide rather than give way to the Roman armies. When the Romans built this huge ramp Uh, up to the top of Masada. It was a towering platform up above the desert, impregnable, built by Herod. And yet the Romans just slowly and steadily built this ramp. And I took that picture from the breach in the wall where the Romans breached the wall. And the, the Jews on Masada knew the Romans were coming the next day. And rather than surrender to them, the remaining warriors and women and children committed suicide on Masada. And when they had excavations there in the fifties in or sixties, they found the bones of the rebels in this place, and the dried out bones that had been there for almost two thousand years, just like the dry bones in Ezekiel, were found in, in this place. Well, it was around that time that the Dead Sea Scrolls were hidden, that we have a replica of here at the um, exhibition uh, tonight. And... That's the Isaiah scroll, and that's the, probably the most memorable scrolls from, from this find, were the two Isaiah scrolls. And in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 8, God said to that prophet, he said, Now go, write it before them in a table, and note it in a book or a scroll, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. And God told the prophet to write those words in the scroll as well, so that those words would be there for us. And then we found scrolls that were 2,000 years old, only 600 years after the prophet himself penned those words. Well, at that time, somebody hid those scrolls in these caves at Qumran, and they hid them most likely because of the invading Roman armies, maybe in a way to protect them. We're not sure why they hid them in that place, but they hid them there in that dry, very dry desert climate, and they were left there uh, for many, many years. Well, the the Christians at that time eventually became, many of them became part of minority groups, because the one group that grew bigger than all the others and, and the most powerful group, the, the uh, what became known as the Catholic Church, united with the Roman Empire and had all the power and influence and didn't allow any other views or discussion about the Bible and didn't allow people to have Bibles themselves. And this, this drawing is of the Waldenses, and it's here in the exhibit, and it shows that Um, Their village has been destroyed and they have to flee. And that's how those people lived in the Alps on the border between uh, France and Italy. And they lived in the mountains as a safe haven to protect themselves. And there were many groups, different groups that were known as the Waldensian groups. Really, it was the term for Protestant in those days. And these people treasured the manuscripts they had. And of course, every manuscript had to be copied out by hand. And so they would copy out those manuscripts, their Bibles, by hand, and then they would treasure them and look after them. And many gave their lives for that Bible. And many of them memorized the words as well, because it wasn't like us when you could come here tonight and you could walk in the door and we would give you a free Bible because the Bible's so plentiful in our day. In those days, it wasn't like that at all. If you wanted one, you would have to either get somebody to copy it out by hand for you, or you'd have to copy it yourself, or you would just memorize parts of the Bible so that you would always have it with you. And that's what people did. They memorized whole books of the Bible in those days. Well, this book here is in the exhibition tonight. And uh, it's over there in the back corner. And I would uh, recommend that after we're done speaking together that you would take a look at that book. It's an incredible um, book with quite a story to it. It was written by Samuel Moreland, who's pictured on the left. And it was written at the time of Oliver Cromwell. And Samuel Moreland wrote this book on behalf of the Waldensian groups who were being persecuted at that time by the Catholic Church. And he appealed to Oliver Cromwell for help, to come and help these people. And the book is all about the Waldensian groups and about the manuscripts uh, that they had. And in that book, and this is a copy of, of a page of it, it records some of the manuscripts that Samuel Moreland brought to England at that time, and the book was published in 1658. Was it? I believe 1658. Yeah. So, and he recorded here a list of manuscripts that he brought over to England from the Waldensian groups, and if you just see about two-thirds, or a third the way down, it says, in the volume F. So this is what he was bringing with, uh, with this book. In the volume F are collected and written in parchment in that which is the Waldensian language, a very ancient but fair, uh, of a fair and distinct character. And then he lists all the books of the Bible that he brought. These were the manuscripts that these people had treasured for centuries, that they had looked after and they had gave their lives for. And these manuscripts then went from these groups to other groups and began to make their way into other countries like England. And the Waldenses commissioned a translation of the Bible from their language into French. And the title page of the Bible is pictured on the left. And it was published on June 3rd, 1535. And it went from France into other places, and it went to England. And as a matter of fact, it was used as one of the sources that our King James Bible was translated from. So we have a story of those manuscripts, how they made their way from the time of the apostles down through the centuries, and the people that had them were people who cared about them, people who gave their lives for them. And that's why these manuscripts weren't corrupted, why they were kept, and why the text wasn't changed. Because these people would give their lives for that book. So they, they were not the kind of people that would corrupt its message. And, and so there's a story then of how these manuscripts were kept. And then how that they were treasured during this time in the Alps. How the people were persecuted. And how many times would they have looked at Psalm 23. And those beautiful words in other passages in the Bible that would get them through. And every single one of these manuscripts tells a story. And if we could know the story, we would know the story of countless people who had fingered the pages, who had looked at those words for consolation and comfort and strength, and not only that, to see God's hand at work in the world, and to look at the prophecies and to be able to see how they were being accomplished. And we can do the same thing today. Well, first, William Tyndale did his work, and we won't go through the whole story tonight, but then after him came this Bible called the Geneva Bible and it was really the Bible in many ways of the Puritans and the Puritans were the ones who came to North America and really the United States was based on on the on the Puritans they were really the backbone of the of the country of that country So the Geneva Bible had a large influence on North America when we start to look back at the history we certainly see that that is the case on the top right is the uh, crest for Yale University. And Yale University, of course, goes right back to the time of the Puritans. And on that crest for Yale University, there's Hebrew writing in that crest. And that those are the words from scripture, um, Urim and, and Thummim, that the priest had. And so they took the Hebrew language and they put it on their crest for their university. That's how connected those people were to the Bible at that time. And when we start looking back at the history of of the United States, we can see how much the Bible had an influence on them and influenced their nation. And the English Bible had a huge impact on the world, even in the early days, before the King James Bible. This is a quote from John Fox from the Acts and Monuments, of John Fox a fairly famous uh, historian and uh, the date there that he lived is from 1516 to 1587 and this is what he he wrote in his time about these were the first bibles that were being printed and distributed amongst the people these were the the ones that had been printed from William Tyndale's translation and John Fox wrote he he said these books of William Tyndale being compiled published "...and sent over into England, it cannot be spoken what a door of light they have opened to the eyes of the whole English nation, which before were many years shut up in darkness." So the the society was being now illuminated and transformed by this book. And then came the King James Bible, which was an authorized translation. The William Tyndale Bible had to be smuggled into England... in in boats unloaded at night as contraband and smuggled in darkness, because if you were caught with it, you would be killed, tortured, maybe even burned at the stake. So it was a very dangerous business smuggling Bibles in those days. Well, things changed, and King James came along, and to unite his, his country, he wanted to produce a new translation. So he came out with this Uh, the King James authorized translation. It was authorized by the king. It was now good and okay to have one. And so the Bible really then began to spread. It was only two decades after the first printing of the King James Bible. So 1611, add 20 years on to that, 1631. And almost every household in England had a Bible. That's how quickly it spread. And that's how then the culture became so Bible-based. And uh, this historian, Barbara Tushman, in this book, The Bible and Sword, she wrote about this impact of the King James Bible. She wrote, with the translation of the Bible into English and its adoption as the highest authority for an autonomous English church, the history, traditions, and moral law of the Hebrew nation became part of the English culture became for a period of three centuries the most powerful single influence on that culture. After the publication of the King James Version in 1611, the adoption was complete. So she's saying for 300 years, that book was the single largest influence on the English nation for 300 years. So it really did shape that culture. But of course, England at that time wasn't just one small country, it grew. And this map shows the extent of what became known as the British Empire um, not so many years ago. And it, it was said that the sun never sets on the British Empire. And if you look at that map and see the the, the, the orange uh, places, and, and really you only just see the big ones, but there's little islands also all over the world that were part of the British Empire. And so, with the spread of, of, that, of that empire and, and of the English culture, it also uh, provided a conduit for the spread of the English Bible. Because everywhere that these people went, they took the Bible with them. And this is a famous painting of Queen Victoria giving this Bible to a man In African uh, dress and uh, and so it's a it's a really good demonstration of how the Bible spread then throughout the world at the time of the Apostles the Romans built these beautiful roads beautiful straight roads that are still there today and they say you know what's the difference between modern roads and the Roman roads well the difference is that the Roman roads have lasted till now that's that's the joke Um, But that's how well these roads were built. And the Romans, you know, thought they were building these roads so that they could access any part of their empire with with great speed. But what they didn't realize is that they were building these roads so that when the apostles came with the gospel, they could travel really quickly throughout the whole empire and spread God's word with ease. And so it was with the British Empire. The British weren't building a great empire um, to spread the Bible. They were building a great empire because of their own desire for power and influence and commerce in the world. But what it did is it provided a conduit for God's word to go out into into the whole world at that time. And uh, this is a quote that we have here in the exhibit, but it, it's it's very um, it, it captures very well um, the the. Uh, how this Bible went out um, in the world at that time. So this is Woodrow Wilson, the President of the United States, and this is what he wrote. The great debt of the English-speaking peoples everywhere is to the translation of the Bible that we all know. I trust I can say all here now in our homes the Bible as it was put forth in English um, have the Bibles it was put forth in English three centuries ago. No other book of any kind ever written in English perhaps no other book ever written in any other tongue has ever so affected the whole life of a people as this authorized version of the scriptures has affected the life of the English-speaking peoples. So this really is a book that just shaped our, our whole entire English culture. And uh, and this man certainly knew what he was talking about um, when he wrote those words. And uh, somebody just from the other side of the spectrum... This man's a Jew, uh, Michael J. Prague, and he's an Israeli writer and diplomat. And um, this is so an outside view, not somebody that was in this culture so much, but somebody really looking from another culture um, at ours. And this is what he wrote um, about the same thing. The milestone in the story of Britain's involvement with the Holy Land was the translation of the Bible into English. As a result of this translation, the entire web of English history, church, tradition, and law was infused with the biblical tradition of the Hebrew nation. For the span of some three centuries, the Bible became the single most powerful influence in English culture. So now we ask, what's the relationship between the King James Version and Israel, between the Jewish people? Because the one is a Protestant English translation. That includes the New Testament. And the other is a nation that is centered around Judaism. So how do these two things come together? Well, what Michael Praga is saying, for three centuries, the Bible was the greatest influence on the English culture. And, of course, a large portion of that Bible is the Hebrew Scriptures. And so the Hebrew Scriptures became part of our culture. And so when we saw that crest from Yale University, they took Hebrew words from the Old Testament Scriptures and they put them on their crest. And so we see that there is some kind of a bridge then between these these two things, between the Hebrew nation and between the English-speaking culture. Because the greatest influence on them in their history going back much further than ours was the English or the, the Hebrew Scriptures. And the largest influence on, on our culture is also, in a way, the Hebrew Scriptures because it's part of the King James Bible, which is... That Bible that has shaped our, our, our society, um, especially for the, the three centuries before this one. Well, that Bible had a message, um, and that message was to do with the Jewish people. And, and you can read it over and over again as you read through the prophecies in the Old Testament. We read together... Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophecy of the dry bones. But just if you were to go through Isaiah or Jeremiah, Zechariah, many of the other prophecies, you'll see this theme over and over again, even right back to the beginning in Deuteronomy. We mentioned those latter chapters of Deuteronomy. Well, this is Jeremiah chapter 30 in verses 2 and 3. And there we read, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, With thee all the, or, or write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee, in a book. So God tells Jeremiah, write these words in a book. So why should he write them in a book? Why why should Jeremiah write these words in a book? Well, God gives him the reason. God says, "For lo, the day's come," saith the Lord, "that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah," saith the Lord, "and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it." So God says to Jeremiah, "I want you to write these words down." And the reason I want you to write these words down is because I'm going to bring the Jewish people back to this land again. And so I want this written down so that people will know this, so people will understand this. And, and so that message of the return of the Jews is infused in this Bible. On, on so many pages, it's there. So as people began to read this, they began to look at this. And at that time, when people first received this Bible three, four hundred years ago, the Jews, of course, were scattered through all the world. Rather, a despised people, as we said. And so they started to read these, these words about that God had said Jeremiah, I want you to write this down because the Jews are going to return back to their land again. And this wasn't just a an Old Testament Hebrew scripture idea. It was also in the New Testament. Jesus himself... Um, said, this is Luke 21, verse 24, a fairly well-known passage. Jesus said, They shall fall by the edge of the sword, the Jewish people, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So there was a period of treading down, Jesus says, and then that would be over. And, and Jerusalem would no longer be trodden down anymore. Well, Jeremiah has another uh, passage. This is just one chapter on from chapter 30 where we were just reading. And this is a fascinating verse, an absolutely fascinating verse. Jeremiah 31, verse 10. When you sit down and think about what this verse is saying, and then you look at the history of this Bible, and it's truly amazing. Because it's written in Jeremiah 31, verse 10. God says, or the prophet says, Hear the word of the Lord. O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, what's the message that you're going to say? He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. So God is saying, this message is going to be declared to the nations. It's going to be declared in, in isles, in coastlands, afar off from this land of Israel. And the message that's going to be declared is he that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. So God is saying in nations throughout the world, a message is going to be told. And that message is that the Jews are going to return and I'm going to look after them. And so this this verse then is obviously referring to a time when the Jews would not be in the land. Because God is saying he that scattered Israel will gather him. So this applies to a time when the Jews would not be in the land. And at that time when the Jews were not in the land, there would be a message. And that message would be that he that scattered Israel is going to gather them back to their land again. And so people began to read the Bible three, four hundred years ago. And they looked at these passages and they began to write books about this. And we have some of these books here in uh, in the exhibition. We have this one here as well. It was written in 1646, so just, you know, not too many years after the King James Bible was published. And what's he writing about? Israel's redemption. Israel's redemption, redeemed, or the Jews' general and miraculous conversion to the faith of the gospel, and, uh, and returning into their own land, and our Savior's personal reign on earth, um, and so forth. So he's saying, he writes this book, and he says the Jews are going to return to their land, and our Savior is going to return um, as well to to establish his kingdom. And he calls his book Israel's Redemption. And this was published in London in 1646. Then we go to France, and uh, this is even earlier than, than uh, the book that we just looked at. I, I can't remember the date, but the book is here also, in the exhibit, and you can see it. And in the preface to this book on, on Bible prophecy, this man called Pierre Giroux, he wrote to the nation of the, the Jews, and he had a message for them. And it was a, a similar message to Robert Mayton that we just looked at. And he says, I desire of that people that they would please to read this book attentively and without prejudice, especially from the middle of the second part to the end. They will find nothing there that can irritate them. <laughs> I confess the hopes they conceive of a kingdom of the Messiah which shall be chiefly for them is built upon express and un- unquestionable prophecies that even their Jerusalem should be rebuilt. And so he's talking about the same message. He got it from the French Bible. Maybe that French Waldensian Bible. Um, so there we have in, in, in the United Kingdom this message is being written about. Um, that message in and Jeremiah. He that scattered Israel will gather him. Here's somebody in France writing about the same thing and and saying the same thing. And this man wrote in uh, 1800 in America. And he said the same thing in this book of a series of lectures published in, in 1800. Just go about halfway down the page there. He says, nothing need to be more plainly declared than this, that the Jews shall certainly return and possess their own land again, notwithstanding their long captivity and utter dispersion. So people read their Bibles, and they read these verses, and they believed it, and they wrote about it in these type of books. And they were ridiculed by people in that day. They said, you've got to be kidding me. Those people, they don't speak the same language. The the Jewish land is part of the Ottoman Empire. It's never going to happen. It's a joke. And people laughed at them, but they believed it because that's what the Bible said. And this man, uh, John Thomas, he wrote a book in uh, 1848 called Elpis Israel, which is Greek for the hope of Israel, taken from the New Testament. And he not only writes about that the Jews would return to their land, but he also writes about the way that they would return, which is really quite incredible. And, And he wrote, in 1848, he wrote, I know not whether the men who at present contrive the foreign policy of Britain entertain the idea of assuming the sovereignty of the Holy Land and of promoting its colonization by the Jews. Their present intentions, however, are of no importance one way or the other because they will be compelled by events soon to happen to do what under existing circumstances, heaven and earth combined, could not move them to attempt. So he said it might look impossible now. He said, but Britain is going to help the Jewish people go back to their land again. And when we look back on it now, it's absolutely incredible that he could write that in 1848. It all comes from the Bible. He just simply read the Bible and believed what the Bible said. And even though people may have laughed at him, he wrote it down, and we can read it today. And if you ever get a chance to read that book, Elpis Israel, it's it's a great book, and he he says a lot more than this um, about those things. Well, another uh, man... Uh, that came after him is a man by the name of Robert Roberts, and he was a preacher. He was uh, the editor, actually, of the the Christadelphian magazine for a number of years, and he traveled throughout the world. There's uh, two books, A Diary of a Voyage and A Diary of a Second Voyage um, to Australia and other lands, and he really did travel throughout the world by steamship at that time, And, and this just shows the first part of his journey down to Australia, but he also traveled around Tasmania, New Zealand, and then across North America. And he made two of those of those journeys. And as he went on those on those trips, he lectured in all the places that he visited. And in those days, people were very interested in these things because they had been reading the Bible, and people in those days read the Bible and they knew it. And so, when he lectured, there would often be uh, pe- uh, a thousand people in each place or more would come to hear him to lecture and the message that he had to give. And here's some of the lectures that he was to give in one of the places he was going to visit. And and these lectures were on Bible prophecy. Bible prophecy proved um, a true guide, the present state of the political world or current events um, as signs of the approaching end of the present dispensation or age. The, the present state of the religious world, the present state of the social world. So as he went, he did these lectures. And part of the content of those lectures was about the return of the Jews to their land. This is a fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 10. Declare it in the isles afar off and say, he that scattered Israel will gather him. And that's what this man was doing. And I don't really think he thought, I'm fulfilling Jeremiah 31, verse 10, and lots of other people did it as well at that time. But he really was declaring that message in aisles afar off from the land of Israel that the Jews had to be regathered. This is something that he wrote in 1885, February 10th, 1885. So at that time, the Ottoman Empire was still powerful, and uh, the land of Israel was sort of a backwater in that empire. People didn't want to live there. The, it was infested with malaria. It wasn't a friendly place to live. It was underdeveloped. It was a backwater. And uh, and so at that time, this is what he wrote and uh, about events from his view from what he'd read in the Bible. He said, a new turning point has in fact been reached at which there is scarcely anything we may not short, shortly see in the way of the comple- uh, completion of the political process program on which our eyes have been fixed, with earnest solicitude for over 30 years past. He said, if the Turkish Empire disappear, which is now almost the daily expectation of politicians, the Holy Land will be liberated from the only obstacle that restrains the full development of impending Jewish restoration under English protection. He got that all from the Bible in 1885. And that's exactly what happened. Because in 1917, the end of World War II, the, uh, the, um, the English, the British, went in and they took um, Palestine from the Ottoman Empire. <coughs> and it was then that the Jews really started to return from the ends of the earth. And this is a book by the historian Martin Gilbert. And he calls his book, From the Ends of the Earth, the Jews in the 20th Century. And that's exactly what happened in the last century in our time. And so General Allenby, pictured here, walked into Jerusalem when they captured it from the Ottoman Turks. And he walked in out of respect for the city. Um, He dismounted and, and walked in November 1917. And it was shortly after that that the British government issued what is... A very famous document now, the Balfour Declaration, and it was a, a declaration of government policy that was written uh, by way of a letter to Lord Rothschild, and it was written from this man on the right-hand side, Arthur Balfour. Now, these people weren't trying to fulfill Bible prophecy. The British statesmen at that time were not trying to fulfill Bible prophecy, but they were influenced by the English Bible. They were Most of them were interested in commerce In in building their empire, in influence in the world, in power. But some of these men were quite influenced by the English Bible. And so they were interested in the idea of the Jews returning to the land. Now some people say um, when the Jews returned to the land, they say, well, they were just trying to fulfill prophecy. And if you know the history, that's a joke, because the Jews that returned to begin with were secular Jews. They didn't believe the Bible at all. They, they didn't care for the Bible. And the religious Jews, they didn't return to the land. They stayed because they said, we're going to wait for the Messiah to come and we're not moving. And it's a mistake. And they said, this is obviously wrong because it's the secular ones that are doing it. And so they sat and they didn't move. And it was only the crisis of World War Two that caused many of them to move. So nobody was trying to fulfill Bible prophecy. It was the furthest furthest thing from their minds. They were fleeing persecution. They were living life. They weren't thinking that we are fulfilling prophecy. And it was the secular ones that first went back to the land. And so at that time, His Majesty's government viewed with favor um, the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. And so, this then became the British mandate for Palestine, and, and at that time, the Jews were able to return. Well, it was after World War II that the state of Israel was established, and during the debate at the United Nations as to whether there should be a national home for the Jews in Palestine or not, Heim Weizmann, who is pictured on the right, and here he is with uh, Truman, the President of the United States, um, Chaim Weizmann... Was later became the first president of uh, the nation of Israel. Ben-Gurin was the prime minister, and he was the first president. Anyways, in the, in the debate, he read from the King James Bible to the whole of the United Nations, as it were, to every nation in the world. And he read from Isaiah 11, verses 11 to 12, which he just shortened down um, by just missing a little bit out where I have put the three dots there. So this is what he read out to the United Nations The Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And everybody heard that. Everybody heard God's word. And you could see it happening in the world um, at that time. And so the state of Israel was established and those were turbulent times and, and trying times. Um, but in 1947, when that vote took place, there was another man in Jerusalem who was thinking about something really entirely else. He was very interested in what was happening at the UN. But he had, he had another concern. And that concern was that he had been in touch with an antiquities dealer, an Arab antiquities dealer in Bethlehem and this antiquities dealer had something that he wanted him to see. And this man was a professor at the Hebrew University. He was an archaeologist, and he was very interested in going to see this. It was some old scrolls. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know what the writing was. Nobody could understand it at the antiquities dealer in Bethlehem. And he wanted to go and see this. He'd seen a few little pieces of it. He was very interested. He recognized the Writing looked like a very old Hebrew script. And so he was going to go that morning um, to Bethlehem, and the the vote at the UN was going to take place that day. And they knew that as soon as the vote took place, there could be riots throughout the area, and it would be very dangerous. So he thought, I'd better go now before the riots come. Unfortunately, he told his wife that he was going to go. And his wife said, no, you're not going. Bethlehem's an Arab city. Everything's divided up. This is very dangerous. You're not going. You have to stay home. So he he stayed home. The vote was delayed by one day. The next morning he got up and he didn't tell his wife where he was going. He got on the bus and he went to Bethlehem and he was the only Jew on the bus. And he went to Bethlehem and he went to this, this antiquities dealer shop. And he looked at what he had and, uh, And he recognized it was very ancient Hebrew scrolls. And he took them back with him on the bus back home in in Jerusalem. And that evening he was starting to look at them and he was trying to figure out what they were. And it was the prophecy of Isaiah. These were the Dead Sea Scrolls. This was the very day that the United Nations voted that there should be a state of Israel. And that very day, these scrolls came into the possession of the Jewish people. And on the right-hand side there is a picture of Eliezer Sukenik who was the professor that bought the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Isaiah scroll, the Isaiah 2 scroll, for the Hebrew University. And, and on the left-hand side is young Jewish children celebrating um, at that time. Well, the timing of this discovery was noticed and taken note of by uh, Eliezer's son, Yigel Yadin, who became a famous archaeologist. And he wrote, I cannot avoid the feeling that there is something symbolic in the discovery of the scrolls and their acquisition at the moment of the creation of the state of Israel. It is as if these manuscripts had been waiting in caves for 2,000 years ever since the destruction of Israel's independence until the people of Israel had returned to their home and their freedom. This symbolism is heightened by the fact that the first three scrolls were bought by my father for Israel on the 29th of November, 1947, the very day on which the United Nations voted for the recreation of the Jewish state in Israel after 2,000 years. So these were incredible events. The timing is, is just amazing. But he also wrote about the meaning of these scrolls for us. One of the, one of the meanings of these scrolls for us because these scrolls dated any manuscripts we had of our Bible by maybe about 1,000 years. And so Yigal Yadin, who was a professor also, he said, the Isaiah scrolls found at Qumran were being copied only about 600 years after the words were uttered by the prophet himself. And we have books here tonight in this exhibit that are over 400 years old. So, as in the life of books, six hundred years is not very long, and that's when these scrolls were copied. And he says, what is astonishing is that despite their antiquity and the fact that the scrolls belong to this pre-standardization period, and what he means by that is that is before the Masoretes sealed everything down to you know the vowel symbol that couldn't be changed, and it's before that um, these scrolls are from before that. He says that they are, on the whole, almost identical with the Masoretic text known to us. So this find, not only the timing of it is is amazing, the timing that that these scrolls were discovered, but it also shows us that the text, that our Bible and the King James Bible, that that text, our Bible was translated from that. It shows and confirms for us the accuracy of that text. So the King James Bible really transformed the English-speaking world, and it infused us, many of us, with an interest and a love for the Jewish people, and it shaped our society and our culture in in so many different ways. It really transformed um, society completely. This book did. And what's interesting is is that today the nation in the world that's probably most influenced by the Bible, at least by the Hebrew scriptures, is the Jewish people. We as an English speaking culture are losing interest in the Bible. Many people don't care anymore. They don't want to know about the Bible anymore. They don't want to talk about it. It's almost a taboo subject to bring up the Bible at, say, at the lunchroom at work. You know, it's like uh, you know something that maybe you shouldn't bring up. But that's our society. We're losing interest. And yet, the, the Jewish nation is actually becoming more interested in the Bible. And the Bible's actually transforming that nation. So that in 1948, it was a secular nation, completely secular nation. Today, it is becoming a very religious nation. As a matter of fact, over 50% of kids in in, uh, kindergarten are now coming from religious homes. And the nation is changing into a much more religious nation. And the Bible is actually transforming that nation. So here you are driving along the road in Israel, and there's a big banner um, put up at the side of the road. And it's a quote from Genesis. And it says, uh, for all the land that you see, to you will I give it, and to your seed forever. Quote from Genesis. And the Bible is really becoming very prominent in that nation. It's the nation that is most influenced, at least by the Old Testament, today. So the Bible transformed our nation, our culture. and still has a a strong influence today. Today, that same book is transforming Israel. And there's many more prophecies about Israel that have to be fulfilled yet. And so I say to you, watch Israel. Because every day it's in the news, and every day it's moving ahead with God's purpose. And it will give you faith in this Bible. Well, we began by talking about Masada. and. At Masada, there were excavations of them. We talked about how they found the bones of the rebels there after 2,000 years. Well, this is a reconstruction of the synagogue that was at Masada. And when they began the excavations at Masada, they found um, the synagogue. And in every synagogue, there's a geniza. And the geniza is the place you put worn-out scrolls because you're not allowed to throw them out because they have God's name on, and that's sacred. So we don't throw them out. We put them in the geniza. So if you find a synagogue, you start looking for the Geniza in the hope that there may be some scrolls there. And that's what they did. And on Masada, in, uh, in the back right-hand corner where that building is, that's where the Geniza was. And there they found a, a scroll that was Ezekiel chapter 37. The reading that we open with tonight. The prophecy of the dry bones was found on Masada. I ask you, is that a coincidence? I don't think so. That's We now see the fulfillment of that prophecy. And we discover that prophecy, at that place where we found the dry bones of that nation. Where the last stand took place. Where that nation was finally completely destroyed and scattered. In that place, the scroll we find is the prophecy of the dry bones. Well, today, our society is still very much in some ways, influenced by the Bible and the results of, of what the Bible has done to our society. And just in the news this last week has been that the President of the United States has said that uh, to Israel that they need to go back to the 1967 borders. And that would even include giving Jerusalem um, back to, to, to the Arab people and relinquishing a city that is very close to them. And not only that, um, all the biblical heartland and the cities like Hebron and, and, and Bethlehem and, uh, and uh, other places throughout that area are all very biblical places to the Jewish people. And uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu, rejected Obama on borders. But when we read that uh, verse from Zechariah, we see how that God's word is still working out in our world today. Because in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, although all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Today we say all the nations of the world against Jerusalem, against the Jewish state. Almost every nation without question is against the Jewish state. As a matter of fact, there's one nation today that's maybe not against the Jewish state, and I'm happy to say that that's Canada. And, uh, you know, as a Christadelphian, I don't get involved in politics, but I must say that I'm happy with with Stephen Harper uh, today, because today, um, Canada took a line against everybody else, and it's hard to take a line when everybody's going one direction to stand up and say, no, we're going to do what we believe is right. And that's what the Stephen Harper government said. We do not They said, we don't care about the cost. We don't care about the consequences. We're doing this simply because we believe it's right. And that's because Stephen Harper is influenced by the English Bible. It's still the influence of this Bible. It's still affecting the world today, and it's affecting our country, to Canada today. This on this very day, it's affecting um, the world, um, and so Canada took a pro-Israel line at the G8 summit, and the Canadian delegation blocked mention of 1967 lines in uh, the group of eight leaders' joint statement, calling Israel and the Palestinians to return to peace talks. So, and Stephen Harper has done this on other occasions. He said, "No, we're we're going to do what's right, and we're not going to support apartheid." against Israel, because we we believe that's wrong, and so we're going to do what's right, even though it may mean that we're going to be, um, we're not going to get a a seat on the Security Council at the UN, because we said that, and and Canada didn't get a seat on the Security Council um, a few months ago, because of what they said about Israel, and the other nations in the world turned against them. Today, otherwise, we see all nations turning against Israel, and it's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, and it's in our Bibles. Well, when I went to Masada recently, um, there in the room, and right beneath this man's chair is the Geniza, where the prophecy of the dry bones was discovered. And he's sitting there, and he's writing a new scroll. And so we really do see that the Jewish people are coming back to life again, and that they are being influenced by the Bible. And so I'd like to finish with this quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 where the prophet wrote, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And it will. This is the 400th year of the King James Bible, but it's not the end of the story. Even though people may not be interested today, God's word will accomplish what it has said. And I say to you, just watch Israel and and keep watching because you will see that these things will will happen exactly exactly as it's laid out and is exactly as these people wrote about like Robert Mayton Pierre Giroux these books that are here tonight the words that they wrote hundreds of years ago based on this Bible are still and even more relevant today than they were when they wrote them because we can see that what they wrote is actually happening in the world around us I'd like to thank you very much for your very kind attention.